Hello, this is Don McPherson, your host of 12 Geniuses. When we decided to do a season on the topic of resilience, talking with a Navy SEAL was a strong desire of mine. We are lucky to have Fleet Master Chief David Isom join the show. He is currently Command Senior Enlisted Leader of the United States Indo-Pacific Command, with its more than 300,000 service members spread across an incredibly diverse geography. Early in his career, Fleet Master Chief Isom completed the BUDS training required to become a Navy SEAL. In this discussion, he shares how he endured Hell Week, the daily dangers of being a member of a SEAL team, and how the U.S. military approaches resilience at an organizational level. We even get into his role in the planning and rescue of Private Jessica Lynch when she was a prisoner of war in Iraq. This episode of 12 Geniuses is brought to you by The Star Conspiracy. The Star Conspiracy is the B2B marketing agency for innovative brands creating the future of workplace solutions. For more information, head over to thestarconspiracy.com. Fleet Master Chief Isom, welcome to 12 Geniuses. Let's start with your background in the U.S. Navy. You enlisted in 1987. Can you walk us through some of the highlights from your career in the Navy? Yeah, yeah. So, you know, obviously you have to go through boot camp, which is always exciting and a, a change of how you, you think about the world, leaving a, a life of being a civilian and into the military for that initial sort of wake up call to what military life is going to be like. From there, went through some initial training, A schools, and then off to the first ship that I was assigned on out of Concord, California. I spent a couple of years on that ship and a second ship after that and was able to deploy in support of Operation Desert Shield and Desert Storm, which was uh, very exciting, and as well as deployments out into the, the Pacific region where I sit now. And that's where I was really first introduced to a lot of the countries that are of high interest for us today and in my current job. Applied and was accepted to go to, to BUDS, which is a basic underwater demolition SEAL training. And after that, I was assigned to SEAL Team 1 around 1994 timeframe. And I uh, spent most of my time there training, preparing, and deploying into the Pacific, once again, in support of training and exercises. And uh, that was another opportunity that laid the foundation for my understanding of the Pacific and our Pacific partners, working with partners and allies all across the region, and really defined what an important role for me that the U.S. plays today in this vitally important area. Then uh, fast forward to around 1998 timeframe, I was selected to attend a selection course for a special mission unit. And after passing that course and being selected, I was assigned to a squadron where I spent a lot of time training and preparing for high-risk operations across the spectrum of, of sea, land, and air. Uh, fast forward to 9-11, and then I, like many others, quickly found myself in Afghanistan, where I was a team leader on multiple deployments, specifically involved in the hunt for high-value al-Qaeda targets like Osama bin Laden and other key leaders from that terrorist organization. 2003, the U.S. invaded Iraq over concerns with Saddam Hussein, and I was deployed there once again, specifically on manhunting operations, looking for Saddam Hussein and other key leaders from his regime. During that time frame, you know, you, you asked about highlights from my career. Probably one of the biggest highlights of my entire career was my role as a team leader in the planning and execution of the rescue of then prisoner of war, Private Jessica Lynch. Just such an awesome thing to, to be involved in a large operation like that, a joint operation 
and to to be able to rescue another American service member and then to see her return home to her home and her family. Over the next several years after that, I would deploy, you know, back to Afghanistan, Pakistan, worked in Kenya, Somalia, Ethiopia, Senegal, South Sudan, to name a few other places. And over the course of roughly 21 years that I was living there in Virginia Beach and, and deploying, you know, one of the biggest highlights was the real distinct honor I had and pleasure of working with some of our nation's greatest patriots and heroes, and then also getting to work with some of the finest special operations forces from our partners and allies all around the globe. After that, I was you know, selected to be a command master chief, and I've been serving in that role ever since my first assignment as a command master chief at Special Reconnaissance Team 2, followed by Naval Special Warfare Group 10, Special Operations Command North, Special Operations Command Pacific, and then here today as the command senior enlisted leader at U.S. Indo-PACOM. The Jessica Lynch rescue, you were involved in that. It sounds like you were involved in the planning of it as well. I wanted to ask you about that, and I knew I was going to be asking you this, so I did a little bit of research. It's been 20 years now. Wow. I'm really feeling old. <laughs> yeah. April will mark the 20th anniversary of the rescue. She was captured in late March of 2003. Could you remind, it was a huge story at the time. Could you remind people who Jessica Lynch was and what the circumstances were of her capture, and then maybe talk about the the circumstances around the rescue so private jessica lynch was part of a convoy that was attacked took a number of casualties and a number of um folks that were initially thought to have been captured but uh, likely had had died in the initial attack on the convoy but jessica lynch was injured pretty severely due to a, a car crash during that attack and so she was was taken hostage taken as a prisoner of war and relocated in eventually ending up in a, in a hospital where the Iraqis were giving her some medical care in, in a small town. And so we received some initial intel that sort of helped us hone in on her location and deployed some reconnaissance elements to further uh, get appropriate details to do some mission planning. And it really turned into a massive joint force effort. You know, a lot of folks focus in on the role of, of my unit and of Navy SEALs for that. But to be honest, I mean, could not have done it without the total joint force and all the, the services, Army, Navy, Air Force, Marines, all, all that participated in various ways to execute that really big mission. And at the time, the, the U.S. military had hit a bit of a, a roadblock and were slowing down just a bit in the movement uh, across the area where this happened. And so her rescue ended up really not just being a significant uplifting event for all of us, but for, in fact, all the forces on the ground there and deteriorated the morale of the, the enemy forces, uplifted our forces as sort of a highlight. And I, I believe, you know, helped push us across some significant bridges and other places where the movement was getting bogged down. But yeah, just a really incredible opportunity to rescue another American. We essentially moved our assault force in via ground and helo and moved into the hospital where she had been held, did not encounter any significant enemy resistance there, but in fact, went to the room where we thought she was located and did not find her initially in that room, but very rapidly through some questioning of, of others on scene there, 
We were able to locate her, continued the clearance of the hospital, found a headquarters that had been set up by the Saddam Fedayeen enemy forces down in the basement of the hospital and ended up finding Jessica Lynch in, in a different room, quickly packaged her up for movement, got her down and out onto a helicopter and very rapidly from, from helicopter to fixed wing aircraft and out of the country rapidly back to the medical care that she desperately needed and then onward journey on back to, to home and to, to her family, which was, was really awesome. So no doubt the, the purpose and meaning as I think back through all the different missions and operations, events that I've been involved in, that was certainly a highlight that really brought a sense of, of purpose and meaning to my whole career. Yeah, I, I can imagine that. I mean, it's 20 years later and I can hear it in your voice, the importance of that and the, the you know, not only the sense of accomplishment, but, you know, it's, it's validating. Oh, I, I imagine it would be validating, you know, thinking back to going through Bud's training and the misery, the absolute misery, and, and that's why you're doing it right? Is to, to be there for your brothers or your sisters or, you know, other, other Americans. It's, it's quite remarkable. So thank you for sharing that story. Yeah, it really, it really did make all the, the suffering and the training and the time spent preparing made every bit of it worthwhile. And honestly, you know, it, it really serves as a great example of the lengths that the United States will go to, to leave no one behind. It's really phenomenal when you think about it. I and mean, that has stood as a sort of a pillar of our ethos and what we're willing to do as a nation to always, to always look for our citizens and our soldiers to make sure that we bring everyone home. We're committed to that. And I think it is really an important part of our American ideals. As you know, season nine of 12 Geniuses is dedicated to the topic of resilience. And I'm excited to talk with a Navy SEAL and somebody with a decorated three and a half decades of experience and accomplishments in the U.S. Navy. I, I want to ask you what your definition of resilience is. Yeah, Don, I mean, what a, what a great question and a great topic for you to hone in on here during this season. I, I really appreciate you focusing on that. I think it's an important topic across our society and certainly here in the military. My definition of resilience, you know, it's, it's about enduring hardships. It's about harnessing our inner strength to be able to rebound from any setbacks or challenges you might face in your life. You know, I think resilience, it doesn't make your problems go away, but it just helps you see past them to a better place on the other side of the problem. Helps you see that light at the end of the tunnel and, and helps you get through all those challenging times in your life. I'm glad you said enduring hardships because a lot of people just think of resilience as rebounding, but I think there's a, an endurance component and just pushing through, whether it be pain or discomfort or challenging times that, that is included in my definition of resilience as well. And when you think of resilience, what are the factors or components that are most important? Is it mindset? Is it purpose? social support, what comes to mind for you? Yeah, the, the endurance aspect is, is really important. And if I think back to when I went through BUDS training, you know, six months of, of sort of self-induced torture assisted by trained instructors, qualified SEALs there to put the pressure on you. And that, that endurance factor is really important. But I think 
you know, you get, you get your endurance through a lot of different things and some of it's different, you know, for each individual, but I think we all share some common sort of domains where we build that endurance by, by building up inside of each of those domains and DOD and SOCOM, Special Operations Command under its POTA Preservation of Force and Family program have really focused on those domains, sort of a total force fitness concept to kind of help get after um, how do we really focus on the right things to make sure that we're building total well-rounded warriors. And the eight domains in the DOD's sort of definition of total force fitness are, you know, that's the physical, the nutritional, the psychological, the spiritual, the social, the medical and dental, the financial, and the envir environmental. When you say environmental, you know, think about things like, you know, under heat stress or heat strokes, external environmental factors. And I think the other domains kind of speak for themselves. You know, social is all about your family and your friends and support there. And they all are important. You know, I, I don't think I could say one is more important than the other. Because if you think about the weight that a person might carry under, for example, heavy indebtedness, as we think about the financial domain and the effects of carrying that indebtedness on their day-to-day -day mindset, and their day-to-day -day resilience, or a person suffering from chronic back pain, as you think about access to medical and dental care, or as you think about the physical domain, the effects of that daily pain really, really can wear you down and, and reduce your ability to, and same thing with a person who suffered from a heat stroke or a serious injury or suffering from malnutrition, all those things can have a severe negative impact on your well-being and your ability to bounce back when faced with adversity. So I guess bottom line, I think it's all about total health, total fitness, a holistic approach, and an all-inclusive look of all those domains. So it's kind of a two-way street, right? If you have these eight factors in place, then your mindset can gravitate toward being positive and know that I have this. And then the mindset can reinforce these eight factors. I like that. Right, right. And, and like you, you mentioned before, the, the purpose, you know, mm -hmm. that, that, can be, that can be derived from a lot of different things. You know, for some, they're focused on their own family, which falls under the social domain. That really creates a sense of purpose or, you know, serving the nation, serving others, the concepts of servant leadership. But purpose certainly is, is important. Let's turn to the start of your service as a Navy SEAL. You had to complete BUDS training. And is that something that people are selected to participate in or is that all volunteer? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. And, and since you said the word BUDS training for all those out there that may not know what that is, you know, it's, that stands for basic underwater demolition seal training. And they kept the underwater demolition portion of the title as a throwback to the predecessors of the Navy SEAL teams. And that was the the UDT, underwater demolition teams that were created back in World War II timeframe to clear obstacles for amphibious landings. So then and now, it's, a, it's an all-voluntary process. You go through an initial screening process, and there's a records review where roughly a thousand applicant records are reviewed, and they try to get that down to somewhere between 250 and 350 candidates through that initial screening who would be eligible to attend BUDS. And then from there, obviously, it often will be whittled down to a graduating class of anywhere from 20 to 50 uh, graduates. 
That's incredible. And so I've read a little bit about this over the years. So out of a, out of a thousand people, maybe 20 to 50 will be successful. And what, what is amazing to me about that is you probably don't apply if you think you can't make it, right? And so you have like this confidence that you're going to make it, but the, the selection process is such that two to 5% are successful, which is absolutely amazing. Yeah. I think everyone that, that walks in the door out of that, you know, 250 to 350 person class, I would guess that they're all fairly confident that they are going to make it. And, uh, and of course the first phase of buds is designed to, um, sort of separate those that are most likely to make it from those that are not. And of course that's where hell week happens. And that's a, a grueling week of, of no sleep, you know, just intense physical activity, 24 hours a day, and quickly whittles it down to that manageable number of anywhere from, from 20 to 50 remaining candidates. Can you describe, can you go through the whole process of describing what Bud's training was like from, you know, the, the moment it starts until you become a Navy SEAL? And you don't have to go into a ton of detail, but what I'd love to get into is just how difficult it is physically and mentally, how demanding it is, and then how you get through that. Yeah, that, that's a great question. And the, the how you get through it might be the hardest part to answer, because I think that's different for everyone. But yeah, it's, it's six months of certainly the most intense training that I ever went through as a young man, sleep deprivation, intense physical and mental testing, you know, long, long days, physical pain, in the water, out of the water, extreme cold, testing you and pushing you to your limits, both mentally and physically, to the point of exhaustion, and then pushing you to go further beyond that, all designed to select candidates that are best suited to integrate into a U.S. Navy SEAL team, to perform high-risk operations, and to be able to manage extreme stress in combat. It's broken into kind of three main phases. Again, phase one is where you go through the infamous hell week, and that's a week of, of, of almost no sleep, 24 hours a day, intense physical and mental testing in and out of the water, extreme cold. And then after that, you go through phase, phase two and phase three, usually with a significantly smaller number of classmates by then. And those two phases are focused, uh, one on diving and the other one on land warfare primarily. In addition, you'll end up going through basic airborne training to learn how to jump out of an airplane and hopefully survive, and then advanced SEAL training after you get assigned to your SEAL team, and all this before you would be sort of qualified to deploy as a SEAL and as a member of a platoon at a SEAL team. As I've read about it, one of the more remarkable things about the Navy SEALs is that you're not only very strong and very tough physically, but there's a cognitive element that is really important as well. So these are really, you're really smart people. And to do cognitively advanced things while you're physically tired is even more difficult than it is just to, to do it while you're well rested. Could you talk about that balance there as well? And what, what the screeners or people who are assessing you are looking for there? 
Yeah, I, I still question their judgment and how they let me slip through the cracks there, but some, somehow I, I squeezed through. No, that is undoubtedly one of the, the toughest parts, especially during Hell Week, as you think about you're divided up into to boat crews, small teams, navigating a, a small boat on evolutions on land, off, off land and in the water. And there's a leader you know, assigned to that boat crew, and he's often given a list of tasks, a list of instructions by the instructor cadre there and expectation that they'll perform to standard, be able to perform everything from obstacle courses to navigating some dangerous waters off the coast of Coronado to maneuvering the boats and their team over to other events to make it there on time and in the right location. And so it really brings out some of the leadership skills and that ability to focus under stress, sleep deprived, oftentimes, you know, on, on borderline hallucinating from lack of sleep. And you see, you see the best in people come out in those moments and you see the true grit. And, and again, really, like you said, really smart, smart folks who come together and, and work together as a team and power through some of the, probably the toughest things they've ever been up against in their life to, to make it through. And as you were preparing to go through Bud's training, how did you, what did you do to make sure you're ready mentally and physically? Yeah, I, I don't think that I really mentally prepared. I just, you know, I did have the benefit of growing up, having played sports, dealt with adversity, had already been to, to college for a couple of years, had worked a little bit on the outside, had been, you know, in the Navy for roughly four years and had deployed on ships. So just probably a level of resiliency that your, your average 18-year-old might not have had because I had a little bit of life experience under my belt. So I think that was, was helpful from a mental perspective. And then as far as physically, you know, I was real comfortable in the water, having grown up swimming, competing on the water, surfing, a lot of time in the water. So at that point, I just focused a lot on strength training, flexibility, cardio in my physical preparation. And even after all of that, I think I, I showed up and was woefully unprepared and unaware of all that I was about to get hit with. It was a, quite a wake-up call. You mentioned that you're a competitive swimmer, and I have been an endurance runner in the past. No, not marathon or ultra marathons, but I think that swimming and endurance running are both physical activities, but also highly, highly mental. And I wonder if that competitive swimming helped give you an edge over some of those people who may not have gone through that sort of training, because you know, I, I just remember running mile after mile after mile and thinking, this is more in my head than it is my body. And I wonder if you agree with that. Yeah, I, I agree 100%. And I'll tell you that for a long time, the SEAL teams focused a lot on individual sports that were part of a larger team effort. So think, you know, wrestling, swimming, water polo, in the water, a lot of, lot of focus on that sort of strength in the water or strength on land and the ability to suffer through some really challenging preparation, challenging competitions. You think about a wrestler having to cut weight and, and really suffer as he prepares, you know, starving himself at times, him or herself, starving, preparing for a competition to make weight. 
and that ability to still perform in spite of all those challenges. When you look back, what separated those people who made it through successfully and became SEALs and those who quit? Yeah, that's, that's always the magic question that uh, it's, it's tough to answer. You know, I think it's different for everyone. You know, resiliency, it, it plays an important role every day for everyone, especially there. As you think about the tasks that you're, you're being tasked to do, the constant physical strain, the mental strain, I think, you know, part of it's having the right mindset. Part of it is having a close connection to your teammates. Maybe for some, it was having family support. And, and at other times, it was just sheer willpower. You know, they, they have a award at the end of BUDS called the Fire in the Gut Award. And that's often given to someone who maybe, you know, wasn't the fastest runner, wasn't the best on the obstacle course, but always had the sheer willpower to, to make it across the finish line, to be a good teammate, to always be there for his teammates, and, and to make it through in spite of maybe some instructors that probably doubted that candidate's ability to make it through but they had the, the willpower and the fire in the gut to see it through to the finish line. When we were preparing for this conversation, I think I mentioned to you a, a high school classmate of mine or somebody who graduated in a neighboring town who became a Navy SEAL. And you know, all of our friends, we competed in sports against each other, and we, we never would have identified him as the one who was going to become a SEAL. But he had something inside him that maybe we weren't able to see, but you know the his training and preparation prepared him for that, and, and, and he went on to have a successful career. So it's, it's not always the people you, you know, by the, judging the book by the cover that are going to make it. Yeah, yeah. It's funny you say judging a book by its cover. I was, I was going to say the same thing. You know, I think Bud's really does teach that. I mean, I, I showed up and it was a daunting experience on day one there at Bud's. I looked down the lineup of other candidates around me and I saw triathletes, wrestlers, collegiate athletes, professional, former professional NFL football player. I mean, I was surrounded by specimens, physical specimens, just impressive and never would have guessed any one of them would end up quitting. So you just never know what is going to help someone make it through. It's, it's really on the inside. I want to ask you about a mission when things went wrong, and I'm going to bring us back to 2011 when the SEALs went in and raided the Osama bin Laden compound, and Admiral McRaven is, is narrating the progress of the operation, and when one of the helicopters went down, he just, without a beat, said, we will now be amending the mission. And so, like, there's this ability to, you know, things are going to go wrong. We know that, but we're going to deal with it. Could you, could you talk about one of the times when you were out in the field and something went wrong and, and how you dealt with it? Yeah, ab absolutely. And, and since you bring up helicopters, I'll, uh, I'll stick to that theme. But you're right. You know, the, a big part of what we do is contingency planning and being prepared for, you know, the enemy gets a vote. And uh, Murphy is often along with us and, uh, you know, Murphy's law, if things are going to go wrong, they're going to happen at the, the worst possible moment. So always having a contingency plan, ability to pivot to plan B. So I was in Afghanistan on a, a similar mission years before the bin Laden raid, looking for the same 
the same guy there, and I was on a helicopter that experienced mechanical issues as, as we were about to fast rope on a cliffside high up, up in the mountains in the Hindu Kush there. And the helicopter pilot had to throw the helicopter sideways off the roof of, of this mountainside and to try and force air up through the rotor blades to regain lift because he had lost lift and was about to sink into the rooftop of our what was supposed to be a target building. And so we're falling out of the sky down into the valley below there and he manages to get some lift and, and sets it down a little rough in the bottom of the valley there, but, but saves all of our lives. But now we're separated, a small team separated from the rest of our squadron, the rest of our teammates who had gone on to clear that target location and others. And so now we had a task of, of cleaning up the mess that had just been made, which meant, you know, um, securing the helicopter, ensuring the safety of that helicopter crew, moving them up to a up to a helicopter landing zone, back up the mountainside, all in the middle of the night with aviators that are accustomed to flying and not walking at night. So that was that was challenging. But yeah, we secured the helicopter, made sure that we took care of all classified materials, zeroed out all the comms equipment, gathered up all the equipment and weapons that needed to be moved, moved with the, the pilots and air crew, dropped them off to a ranger position further up the mountainside and then we patrolled with my team patrolled and caught up to the rest of the squadron and continued the clearance and the search in the valley there so as you described um, we just had to pivot to plan b you know we had to deal with the problem at hand reassess where we were what we needed to do reassess where our entire squadron was in the operation and figure out the best way to to carry on with the mission and how do you do that without panicking? Is it a matter of confidence? We've done this before. Is it a matter of we've prepared and prepared and prepared? Is it a matter of, you know, I trust my buddies, the other people who are on this mission with me? What, what are all of the factors that go into, you know, dealing with this calmly or maybe not so calmly, but, but dealing with it in a way that you're going to be successful? Yeah, there's a, obviously a tremendous amount of training and preparation constantly ongoing in preparation for deployments, in preparation for combat operations. And so that definitely helps. And obviously at a, a special mission unit where you're able to conduct a lot of live fire training, explosive breaching, all the things that, that makes it a high risk evolution, even when you're training, those things prepare you for when things might go wrong. And of course, reliance on your teammates, you've, you've trained with them, you've prepared with them, you know them, they know you. So that ability to rely on your teammates. And if you're a team leader, like I was, I mean, it's critical. You got to remain calm under pressure. You got to have a clear eyed look at the scenario that you're suddenly thrust into. And ultimately it's about protecting your teammates. And it's all very sobering in that moment, but you, you seize those responsibilities and do what you have to do to focus on your teammates, protect your teammates, focus on the mission and complete the mission. And as you were going on these missions, how often did you find yourself entering circumstances that were potentially life-threatening? Always. <laughs> in Daily? 
in in training and in training and in combat yeah it was it was daily you know as i was just describing all those high risk evolutions from conducting air operations in and around helicopters and fixed wing aircraft skydiving scuba diving explosives breaching live fire high speed boats fast roping rappelling rock climbing climbing up the side of ships all those high risk evolutions any one of those puts you and your teammates in life threatening situations and we've we've undoubtedly injured and and lost teammates during both both training and obviously during combat operations because it's all it's all high risk how do you manage the stress of being in these life threatening situations all of the time is that something you do individually do you have a practice for doing that do you do it as a team how is that managed yeah, you know, there's a lot of internalization. There's a lot of compartmenting as an individual. A lot of, a lot of my teammates and I all practice mindfulness. So there's a lot of individual prep. There's the physical aspects of being physically ready, and I think that's important because the the mind and body connection is is really important there. And so the better physically prepared you are, I think that also lends to your mental preparedness and your ability to manage stress. And then humor is important. You know, some of the best operators I've ever known, they're also the funniest people I've ever known. So I think there's an ability to kind of de-stress through, through humor, often harsh humor <laughs> and, and crushing humor as you, you crush teammates with uh, some of the, the fun poking that you do at them. But it's a, it's, a, it's a part of the camaraderie, part of that teamwork, team building that really ties the team together and, and helps you through those stressful situations. You mentioned mindfulness. Could you talk a little bit about what that looks like in, in practice? Yeah, I, I subscribe to my own version of, of meditation just in the mornings, you know, I get up and kind of think through appreciation, appreciation for the day and, and thinking about the previous day and where I was, what I did, how I did it, thinking through the challenges of the upcoming day, breathing, a lot of breathing techniques out there that are good for mindfulness. I think it's, it's all good. It's all different for each individual. Some things work, work better for others, but I like that first, first thing in the morning moments of meditation to kind of assess and then to prepare. You had mentioned loss and I want to ask you about when you have lost a teammate or somebody you were working with in, in combat. How do you, how do you deal with that individually or as a team? Yeah, I think that the team aspects of, of loss are really important and that applies not just to, to military or SEALs or, or teams here, but I think broadly being surrounded by, you think about families that come together in a time of loss and mourning, being able to lean on each other, lean on your, your teammates, your workmates, your, your family to get through those stressful times is really important. I think it, again, thinking about mindfulness, you know, it, it, it often, I think it drives folks to reflect on all that they've had and all that they've done and accomplished and where they are in their life and the blessings that, uh, that we have to count. So I think the the family aspect of it is real important. And obviously in the SEAL teams, it's a very small community, very tight knit. You grow really close and tight to your teams at the lowest level, at your smallest units of action. So think, you know, five, six, seven 
teammates all really very tight, like a family, and they that ability to, to come together at times of mourning, I think, are really important. And what about commanding officers or leaders? How were they involved in helping people overcome the loss of a teammate? Yeah, I think leadership, you know, that's an important aspect of it. You know, it's important to to talk about it. It's important to talk about it often, you know, before things happen, to be prepared, to be thinking about it, to be thinking about how you deal with adversity, to talk to other leaders in your organization, encouraging them to focus on that as a priority. And as leaders, you have to connect people with support when they need it. You have to build teams that support each other. You have to align resources and you have to lead with, with care and compassion. And then as, as teammates, as you think about leaders in those positions, you know, they are often isolated. So you end up with commanding officers that don't necessarily have a team of five or six or 12 or 15 platoon mates right around them all the time. And so sometimes the burden of command can be heavy. And so you have leaders that suffer through some really tough times. And so it's important as teammates to to look not just laterally across at your teammates beside you, but be looking up and down the chain to understand the effects on everyone around you. That's a really, really good point. The isolation of leaders, oftentimes they're not able to tap into the social support that you might have on the team level. And I've had an opportunity to interview a number of military leaders. Admiral Ron Perrette has been on the show and Captain Ken Wallace, you probably know those guys or know of them at least. Yeah. And they have, ta- and, and Master Gunnery Sergeant Scott Stalker, they've talked about their network and the importance of, you know, creating a, a network or social support team, people who have been through this before, people they can talk to, you know, whatever the hour of the day and, and how important that is to their success and dealing with stress and overcoming obstacles and challenges. Yeah, that's, that's such a great point. Really important as you think about leaders who take on the role of, of leadership and the, the mantle of leadership inside of an organization. You know, it's, it's often mission-focused and very mission-driven and so easy for them to sometimes forget about taking care of themselves sometimes forget about building a network of support and to be servant leaders that are very focused down and in on all of their people. So when loss does happen around them, losing a a command member, for example, can be a really impactful and and tough scenario for for a commander, for a leader to go through, often unsupported and feeling like they are they need to continue leading through the adversity, continue leading through the challenge, so there's no time for them to focus on themselves. So it is important to, for teammates to really think about those all around them. We talked a lot about your experience as a SEAL team member, and now you're a part of a huge organization, Indo-Pacific Command, 300,000 plus people, half of the globe. If I remember correctly in my research, 3,000 different languages and, you know, dozens of countries. And so you're in this very senior position now. And I I just wonder in this position, how you ensure the people under your leadership are resilient and capable of dealing with adversity. It's a pretty massive organization and Indopaycom spans, you know, half the planet. 
And it's a lot, but I'll tell you that the services, so each service, Army, Navy, Air Force, Marines, Space Force, they, within their own lines, they do a lot of the, you know, they're responsible for man, train, equip, and then prepare and deploy forces. And then we, we receive those forces out here and employ them in the operational realm. So they do all that preparation work. And so within their own lines, they've done a lot to try and build organizational resilience, to try to build resilience in individuals. SOCOM was one of the Special Operations Command. SOCOM was one of the, the first, I, I think, to really focus resources and capabilities on a program that they called POTUF, Preservation of the Force and Family. And so that was really the beginning of some of this when they saw the impacts of combat on a very small force where humans were more important than hardware because of the size of the force. You know, you just can't afford to, to lose people. You need to keep everyone on the battlefield, on the playing field. And so maintaining the human was, was ultimately the challenge. And so they focused a lot of, of resources and people on the, the different domains to, to help. And so I think from there, the other services saw that and have really started to expand on it inside of each service. You know, I can, I can look over here on my desk and I've got a book from the Navy. It's the commanding officer's handbook on warrior toughness with a focus on mind, body, and soul. And so each service has done a, a lot to do that. So we internally, we rely on that. You know, we have elements. We have an Army element here inside of Indo-PACOM. We have a Navy element, Air Force element, Marine element. They're all responsible for the programs that each service is focused on. And so they work within their own lines to help ensure individual resilience. And then, of course, at my level, I try to tie all that together and ensure that we have a resilient joint force and a resilient organization here where folks are ready to face adversity and, as we talked about, bounce back when needed. Over the last few weeks, I think this idea of chat GPT, which I'm sure you're aware of, has really shaken people, a lot of people, particularly maybe in the creative fields. But you said something that I think is is really important related to this, and that is the human is more important than hardware. And I wonder if you, in an AI world, if you still believe that, and if you could give people some assurance that actually the human is more important than hardware. I mean, I think I, I read here recently, someone said, you know, you won't be defeated by AI. You'll be defeated by the human that knows how to harness AI. So I think there's a human aspect to, to everything we do in spite of projections that we will all be replaced by smart robots and that we'll, you know, quickly fall to the wayside as a, as a human race. I think in the end, the cognitive abilities of humans, our resourcefulness, our innovation, our connectivity with each other, those ties that, that bind us together and make us stronger as teams, all those things factor into the thing that will ensure our, our strength going forward. And I think, again, our abilities to harness technology, to harness AI, to use it all for the betterment of, of humanity, for the betterment of the greater good, that's where we're headed. Let's get back to resilience for a moment. 
as a leader, how do you balance the need for resilience within your people with mental health challenges that someone might be having? As a leader, I mean, you have to approach with empathy. You have to be, you know, some of my favorite leadership words all begin with C. And I think in this case, you know, caring and compassion are two really important aspects of good leadership. So while you want to build resilience in your people and in your organization, you also have to recognize that not everyone is on the same level. Not everyone is, is built the same. And so if someone is struggling, they may need some caring and compassion. They might need resources to help get through some challenging times. And then they will need help later to begin to focus on how they can build resilience. One of the most important roles I have in my life is that of a father, and you're a father too. And I was really excited to know that you have young children like I do, but you have a spectrum of children, with, which you may or may not want to kind of disclose here. But you're a father too, and I wonder what you've done to make sure your children have the resilience necessary to thrive in our changing world, because a lot of parents today just clear obstacles out of their way so their children can succeed. But actually, the clearing of the obstacles is probably the work that a lot of kids need to be doing themselves in order to become more resilient and to be prepared to thrive in, in for the rest of their lives. So I just wonder how you approach that or have approached that as a father. That's such a great point. I've got six kids and as, as proud as I am of, of my career and, and being a Navy SEAL and all the great operations and, and missions that I was able to be a part of, all that pales in comparison to my pride of my six kids and all that they are and all they've accomplished and all that they will accomplish. And so, yeah, I mean, you, you said it right there, right? I mean, you have to let them fail a little. You can't just clear out all the obstacles. You can't solve all their problems for them. And I think that starts very early on because you want your, you want your children to make some small mistakes. You want them to learn from those mistakes. Otherwise, they may face a really big mistake, a, a life-altering or life-ending mistake at some point and be totally unprepared for that and might make some really bad decisions. So you, you got to you got to expose kids to diverse situations where they're going to have to struggle a little. You're going to have to let them maybe, you know, work a job as a teenager and learn social skills, working around challenging scenarios that they might not face. Otherwise, maybe letting them work through college to earn some money and help pay for a car or help pay for a phone or help pay for college. Early on, I think you got to get kids outside and experience nature and some of the challenges of being outdoors, of, of temperatures, cold and hot and extremes, going hiking and camping and getting in the water where they may not be comfortable. You, you can't be a helicopter parent. You got to allow kids to stumble into small problems and, and then allow them to solve them so they can be ready for bigger problems later on in life. What advice would you have, particularly for a young person who may want a career as a Navy SEAL or in some sort of really difficult career that requires a high level of resilience? How would they, how should they be preparing themselves for that? Yeah, I, I think whether it's preparing to be a SEAL or preparing for a, a career as an engineer or preparing to 
to do podcasts like you're doing, whatever it is that, that folks find as, as a goal in life. Number one, don't let naysayers stop you. You know, if you have a dream, then take it on, research it. Information is out there. Learn what others have done to be successful. Take on a mentor. Take on someone who will be a positive supporter who will tell you that you can do it. Ignore naysayers. I think it's important to buy into the idea that that preparation is the key. You you've got to you got to get ready. You got to prepare, and you got to do it every morning, even when it's hard, even when you don't want to get out of bed. You got to be willing to to crash through obstacles, to prepare, to to tackle those hard those challenges that that may be a little uncomfortable at times. But yeah, I think. Have a mentor, ignore naysayers, and then prepare and get on with it. That's what I would say. I'm going to add one thing to it, and I, I wonder if you can comment on it. I, I did a little search on this really quickly, and it's a, attributed to Theodore Roosevelt, but the quote is, comparison is the thief of joy. And I really want to teach my kids and anybody I'm mentoring, don't compare yourself with others because that's a fast track to being disappointed. Just get better incrementally by yourself. Compare yourself to your, yourself. Use yourself as the benchmark. And I wonder if you agree with that. Yeah, I, I love that. You know, I mean, it's great to have, to have role models and to, to see, you know, a, a North Star, a direction, a goal, and to set that out there somewhere. But I think it's important to recognize that, that those, those folks that are superstars in their field, they didn't wake up like that. They didn't just put their pants on one day and, and that was them. You know, it took weeks, months, maybe years of preparation and test and trial and tribulations and failures. And it took a lot to get there. And it's important to, to see yourself, to recognize your own, your failures and your successes to, to be your own benchmark and then to continue striving and just to never give up. You know, you gotta, you gotta be willing to Take those those tough chances sometimes, accept failure, know that that's just an opportunity to grow and to get better and to eventually achieve those dreams and, and be the thing that you want to become. Fleet Master Chief Isom, this has been an incredibly fun conversation and I'm so grateful for your time and honored to have you on the show. Thanks for sharing your story and thank you for being a genius. Thank you for listening to 12 Geniuses and thanks to The Star Conspiracy for sponsoring this week's show. We will be back next week with former Heisman Trophy winner Johnny the Jet Rogers. We discuss the resilience he demonstrated overcoming a career-ending injury that threatened his ability to walk. Years later, he used that same resilience to survive a six-week hospitalization with COVID during the early part of the pandemic. While others feared the worst, Johnny never gave up hope even as he struggled for every breath. Thanks to Richard Jocelyn for producing this show. To subscribe to 12 Geniuses, please go to 12geniuses.com. Thanks for listening, and thank you for being a genius.